We're going to be in Exodus 4.18 through 6.13. So we're going to cover some ground tonight. It'll be slow at first, and then it'll move more quickly in the second part of the study. Um, let's, uh, let's pray and just ask for God's guidance and then jump right into the text. Lord, uh, we love you very much. We count it a privilege. I'm thankful for a worship and song that reminds us that there's really nothing inside of us that we can muster or reach down deep to, to find that, that, would, that would gain approval in your sight. It's something outside of us, and it's pled for us by Christ on, Christ on the cross. And um, while it's beautiful in a song, Lord, the, the reality of it is so much sweeter, and I pray that we wouldn't miss it. And I pray that we would sit here realizing um, the beauty of being redeemed and the beauty of being in a process of sanctification where we're made to, to be more like Christ. Lord, I pray that that would happen uh, in the uh, study of the Word tonight. We love you very much. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Genesis was a book about beginnings, and Exodus is largely a book about redemption. And not just because some people need redemption, but because everybody needs redemption. We, we have not uh, come across anyone yet who didn't need it, nor will we come across anyone later who doesn't need it. Uh, redemption is, is something that, is, uh, that we all have, the need for redemption is something we all have in common. And uh, it is a large theme in this book, and we'll see it uh, tonight as well. Brief recap, just to dive back into the text, if you have been here for the last few weeks or not, um, uh, what is the condition of Israel as we're coming up to chapter 3? At the beginning of the book of Exodus, what's the condition of Israel? They're enslaved. And what, what, who are they enslaved by? The Egyptians. And how did that happen? They grew to be too many. Now, how many did they start off as? Anyone know? Seventy-something. We'll go with that. And, uh, and that was when Joseph uh, was brought into the house of Pharaoh. And because his, how did he get there, by the way? Did he apply for the job? He was sold into slavery. That's right. And uh, he was sold into slavery. He's brought into uh, Egypt, and then um, God blessed him immensely. And he worked his way to a place of great power. And then over the years, as they were settled in the land of Goshen, there was a new Pharaoh who came along. And so when you see Pharaoh in the Bible, it's not just one guy. There were many different Pharaohs. Over time, they died just like everyone else because they're not God. Um, and uh, what happened was there was a Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph, and the people of Israel uh, were increasing in number. And why was that happening? <coughs> God's very abundant blessing. Uh, they, were, they were reproducing at an astronomical rate, and um, there were many, many, many Israelites. And so the Egyptians said, they're, they're growing, there's too many, so we're going to afflict them, and we're going to give them bitter, hard uh, labor. We're going to set taskmasters over them. Now, what's happened with Moses thus far? Moses comes in in chapter 2. We cover a few hundred years in chapter 1 of Exodus. We cover about 80 in chapter 2. What's happened with Moses so, so far? How did his life begin? Sorry? Yeah, his life was threatened before he was even born. Um, why was his life threatened? Yeah. We will control the Hebrew population by killing all of the male uh, children. 
And so they told the midwives to do that. The midwife said, you don't understand. These Hebrew women, they will birth a child in no time flat, and we can't do it. And so then he said to throw him in the Nile. And so Moses was thrown in the Nile, but not in the means that Pharaoh intended. How was he put into the Nile? In a little baby ark, covered in pitch, which means atonement. And um, they, uh, uh, they placed Moses in the ark, and this was something done by Moses' mom and, and his sister, and it was an act of what? Faith. It wasn't just, let's hope for the best. It wasn't just, we really don't want this baby to die because it's a pretty baby, which could almost look like that if you, if you don't read the text right. But what we saw was that it was, in fact, an act of faith. So that means faith comes through hearing. So they must have heard from God, and God told them to do this, and they did. And so what happens? Little baby Moses is floating in the river, and what happens? Yes, Pharaoh's daughter finds little baby Moses. And uh, what happens next? I know y'all are paying attention. Y'all are doing good. It's good. He was adopted and brought up in the house of Pharaoh. And who got to nurse him? His own mother. And she got paid to do it. It's a sweet setup. So, uh, really, Moses' life is, what we're going to see is really three sections of 40 years. He spends the first 40 years, I mean, just, just picture it for a moment, outside of if God hadn't intervened. He, he would, he, well, one, he probably would have just died at birth. But it would have just been a guy who spends 40 years in the wrong household, in the wrong family, and another 40 years in exile, and another 40 years in a wilderness. But because of God's sovereign, providential hand working through the whole thing, it was a much, much better uh, occurrence than that. And so uh, he, he was raised up to be a great leader, even though he, there was really nothing uh, hugely redemptive in him. I mean, when God comes to him and says, I want you to lead my people out, he, he whines, and no, I don't think so. And when he runs out of excuses, he finally just says, can you just ask someone else? Like, he just, he just sort of gives up, and God is very, very gracious with him. How did God call Moses? The burning bush. And what was unique about that burning bush? It was not consumed. Okay, there was a lot of imagery there. We talked about it last week. Everything's online if you want to go listen. Uh, how did Moses respond? Reluctantly. Great word. Um, and what were the powerful signs that he was given, and what do they signify? What was the first thing? Take the staff, throw it down, and what does it turn into? And if you have faith, you'll do what? Truth, faith, is grabbing the snake by the tail. Okay. What was the next one? The hand. Yeah, what did he do? He put it in his cloak, took it out, and it was leprous, put it back in, took it out, it wasn't. And what was the last one? Yeah, taking the water from the Nile, pouring it out, and turning it into blood. And it showed that God has power over uh, humanity, God has power over health, God has power over nature. Uh, God has power over creatures. I mean, there's just this exhibition of God's power through a very feeble means like Moses. Uh, now, Exodus 4.18. We're going to dive right in. Through 20. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brother. Now, he's heard from God. He's been given these powerful signs. And God says, Go. Don't forget your staff. Take it with you. Let's get, let's get to work. And so now Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, who he's lived with for like 40 years at this point. 
And he says to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, why were they seeking his life? Because he killed a guy. Moses was a murderer. One of the greatest leaders, forefathers, pillars of the faith was a murderer. And so what happened is he saw a Hebrew beating, or an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he looked this way, he looked that way. He strikes him down, kills him, buries him in the sand. Not his best moment, no doubt. And so uh, Pharaoh decided, you know what, I'm going to kill him. But now God is saying, those who are seeking your life are dead. Good for you. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So right off the bat, we see God's provision in a handful of ways. What are they? How do we see God's provision just in those short verses? Yeah, that's a big one. All the guys who want to kill you aren't alive. Well, that's a huge thing. Forty years he's been there, and his father-in-law, it, it appears to be a short conversation, and, and he sends him away in peace. That's a great blessing. What else? What is he leaving with? A wife and sons. Huge blessing there. Abundant blessing there. Look at verses 21 through 23. We're going to camp out here for a minute. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Whoa. That's throwing down with Moses, What's, or with uh, the Pharaoh. What, what has the Pharaoh done previously? Killing all the firstborns, and God says, go back and tell him, Israel's my firstborn, and if you don't let him go, I'll strike down your firstborn. Now, this is a guy who's, who's, who's been in exile from, from Egypt for a while. Now, we're going to spend a bit of time in these verses because there are some very complex things taking place, and be patient in them. We may read parts of Scripture tonight that some of you have never looked at. We may read parts of Scripture tonight that y'all have looked at a lot and still have a lot of questions. Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. If we really dive into it, this is a very complex issue. Um, but before we do, what is the reason that God's people were to be let go? Why? So they could worship him. So it wasn't just about freedom. It was really about worship. And remember, their slavery doesn't just inform our circumstances in life, but it informs what? Their oppression and slavery is like our oppression under sin. And so when they're to be freed here, it's freed for worship. It's the same with our sin. We are so oppressed by our sin, and when God gives us freedom, redemption, forgiveness, it's not just for the sake of not having to worry about this anymore. It's for the sake of worship. We're worshipers. God redeems us. He forgives us. He, he takes a, a filthy vessel, cleans it out for new use so that we can be poured out as He sees fit and a blessing to many. So uh, it's all about worship. This is very important. So Moses has his powerful signs and God's blessing, but what has God said that he will do to Pharaoh's heart? Harden it. Okay. What do you think that means? There's a... 
Make it unresponsive, okay? Any other thoughts on what it means that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened? Deaf? Unable to receive the truth? Yes. Yeah, upon his heart being hardened, his personal will, what Morris was just saying, is it'll be strengthened. Like the thing that Pharaoh wants, it's just going to be heightened if his heart is hardened towards the truth that God's revealing through his people. Okay. I'm always hesitant to say this, but turn to Romans 9. While many questions arise when you look at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and what the implications are across a much greater scale, I'm going to limit us to two tonight, very much on purpose, because we can go down many trails and many thoughts that are all very worthwhile. But I want us to look at two questions tonight. First, the question I want us to look at is, why would God harden anyone's heart? That'll be our first question. The second question is, is Pharaoh still responsible for his actions if God hardened his heart? Those are the two questions we're going to look at. There will be many others. So if you're thinking, what about this? What about this? That's sort of why God wrote these verses. To, to call, I mean, he wrote them in a manner where Paul in, has written a letter to the church in Rome, and he's using a type of communication that is called diatribe, where essentially it's like he asks a question and he answers it as though he's having a conversation with someone, even though it's just him. He looks like a crazy person, but it makes great sense because it's in our Bible. So uh, he is making an appeal to the church in Rome, and he really wants them to have clarity and understanding as to why God would ever harden anyone's heart and how God works out salvation in the lives of many. And all the buzzwords are election and predestination and choosing and foreknowledge, all these things. So if any of those words make you uncomfortable, welcome to the club. Uh, None of us ever heard those words for the first time and were like, oh, that's fantastic. Many of us were uh, um, likely offended the first time we heard words like that, or terrified, or am I chosen? Uh, What do I have to do to be? I mean, it just goes on and on, and I'm not belittling it. I'm not making light of it. I'm just trying to really set the stage here that I'm about to read a bunch of verses that are very deep. They're meant to give us clarity, but sometimes before we can have greater clarity, we have to have a bunch of questions arise in our own hearts. And so, Sometimes more questions will come up so that we will have the opportunity to gather more full, robust, appropriate, God-glorifying, biblically-founded answers. So, I'm going to read now. If you've never read this chapter, it's shocking. I just want to make that very clear. Uh, um, So now I'm going to read it. Verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ 
Have you ever prayed like that? I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, the Israelites. My brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs of whom Moses is one. Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What he's starting off here in in this very pivotal chapter, in the greatest letter ever written, he's starting off by saying, I don't just view my Israelite brethren of the flesh as, well, oh well, they don't love Jesus. They don't care about God, or, or they're just confused, whatever. No big deal. God's going to do what he's got to do. That's not his attitude at all. In fact, he starts off this very difficult chapter by saying, if there was a love that exists that was true in such a capacity that I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my Israelite brethren, I would do that. That's what Paul is saying. He starts off saying, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. I bear this truth by the work of the Spirit. If there was a love that existed that was so great that I, I could actually wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ, if it meant that they weren't accursed and cut off from Christ, that's his concern, is that there are Israelites, ethnic Israelites of the flesh, of the blood, who are cursed and cut off from Christ. And he's saying, I wish that essentially we could trade places. I would take their spot if it were even possible. If that kind of love existed, that's what I would do. That's what Paul's saying. I've never prayed for anyone like that. The depth of this prayer is beyond much of our comprehension. Now look at the next verse. So what he's going to start doing here is he's trying to say, but God chose Israel. I mean, look what he did in Egypt. Look what he did with Joseph. Look what he did as he brought them together. Look what he did after Babylon. And they were, the nations were scattered and there were nations everywhere. And he, and he looks at this nation, Israel, and says, I'm going, to, I'm going to make a nation out of Abraham. I'm going to bring them up and I'm going to keep them. I'm going to give them covenants and promises. And I'm going to watch after them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And he's troubled at the fact that so many have rejected Christ, alienated, accursed, cut off from Christ. It says, verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This should make a room full of Gentiles glad. You're a room full of Gentiles. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, we studied all of that, though they were not yet born, this is where it gets really troubling, though they were not yet born, like in the womb, and had done nothing either good or bad, there was nothing to punish, and there was nothing to reward. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
Continue means it has been going on. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, the calling one. She was told, the older, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why would God harden Esau's heart? That's a question that comes into play here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What he's getting at is they were still in the womb. They did nothing good. They did nothing bad. There was nothing to reward. There was nothing to punish. By no means. He's saying God is not unjust. For he says to Moses, this is, this is what we just read in, in Exodus. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scriptures says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he, God, hardens whomever he wills. So I'll ask the question, according to these verses, why would God harden someone's heart? To show his power, what else? To show his mercy, what else? To accomplish his plan. I, these are all biblical answers. Love it. For his glory. Yes. It does not depend upon human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. So a rescue there is not, oh, we finally earned our way out of this thing. It is... What do we have to do but worship the very reason that we have been rescued? So one is to show that he will have mercy and compassion on whom he chooses. That's a big picture of God. When I first read this, when I first studied this, I didn't have a real big view of God, and I, had, I was very, very troubled by these words. I was thinking... It's to whoever he chooses, like however he feels. Yes, he's God. He's not like us, and he doesn't want you to think that you're like him. He's not our equal, and we don't speak to him as a peer. It's necessary that he shows us that he is not our equal, and that he is, in fact, far above us. To show also that it is not based on human will or exertion, but on God. Our best efforts will fall short. Moses' best effort fell short. Pharaoh's best effort fell short. They actually have quite a bit in common. If you look at the story closely, you don't look at the story of Moses and Pharaoh and say, be like Moses, don't be like Pharaoh. There's a lot of common denominators with them. And the big difference is God and what God chooses to do with each of them as his own vessels, which is what we'll get to in a minute. It's the case for both Pharaoh and Moses. The other reason that he would harden someone's heart is to show his power in his children that his name might be proclaimed. Those are biblical 
answers, we will move on to the second question. Is Pharaoh responsible for his actions if God hardened his heart? I'm going to read verses 19 through 33, and I want you all to give me the answer like you just did. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This verse made me so mad the first time I read it. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, Moses and Pharaoh, same lump, Jacob and Esau, same lump, Isaac and Ishmael, same lump, Babylonians and Israelites, same lump, Egypt and Israelites, same lump. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power that this is so hard. What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction? He's enduring something that He's prepared for a reason, to show His mercy and His wrath. Is this hard yet? Absolutely. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, those who are not My people, I will call My people. Those would be children of the promise, not just children of the flesh. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, which what happened to that place? Utter destruction. It was, not, it was not redeemed. It was destroyed. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Because you can't. It's not according to human will or exertion. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So my question after the reading those verses is, is Pharaoh responsible for his actions? Yes. Are you responsible for your sinful actions? Okay. Yes, Pharaoh is responsible. Out of the same lump, God makes two types of vessels. What are the two types of vessels? Vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. Okay. 
One is for what kind of use? One's for dishonorable use. Who's doing the using of the vessel? God. And one is for honorable use. Now, in some way, God's power and wrath are displayed through vessels. God's power and wrath are displayed through vessels of wrath in his patient endurance of their hard heartedness. Again, that's very hard. I'll say it again, and I don't know if it'll be any better. In some way, God's power and wrath are displayed through vessels of wrath in his patient endurance of their hard heartedness, in order that those who are his may know the riches of his glory, which he prepared beforehand for glory. These seem to be two things that don't go together. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for a purpose, yet Pharaoh was responsible for the hardness of his heart. How do they go together? There's a really wonderful term that helps us to understand this. And I say helps us because I don't know if any of us can look at this and say, oh yeah, it seems mysterious, but I've totally blown the mystery out of the water and I get it. This is hard. The phrase is called antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. Antinomy. I don't dismiss just because it might be a new word. Just listen closely. Antinomy is a contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. That's why Paul is saying, well, is there injustice on God's part? No. Well, who can find fault? Who could resist God's will? How, how does this work? And what he's saying is, I've got these two things that they seem to both be worthwhile, reasonable, and making sense, but I have a hard time with them going together. I have a hard time that they're sitting next to each other. That's antinomy. A contradiction between conclusions which, seems, which seem equilog- equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. This exists when a pair of principles, the principles we are talking about are, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh is responsible for his hard heart. When these two principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both completely undeniable. That's the antinomy. We learned a new word. It may be confusing at first, but we can utilize it to help us understand this. Now, here's the thing. Uh, J.I. Packer says, accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. (laughs) I like his words. Is this hard to teach? Sure, but just accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. He says, man is a responsible moral agent, though he is divinely controlled. Let the two truths live side by side as they do in Scripture. Don't try to undo it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't lean too far in one direction to the detriment of the other direction. Don't come back in this direction to the detriment of this other direction. What I'm getting at is um, avoid the extremes of wanting to do away with any sort of mystery. These are very hard things to explain. If you're a thinker at all, you just want to say, okay, I I want to make so much sense of this. I want to explain it with clarity so that everyone goes, thank you. Perfect. Let's move on. Now, uh, I want to read a couple excerpts from J.I. Packer wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Ironically, those things don't go together to some people. They should. He says, our speculations are not the measure of our God. He's saying what we're seeing here in Scripture about how God works and how He moves, our speculations are not the measure of our God. He's beyond our understanding. His greatness is unsearchable. 
A God whom we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of himself confronted us with no mysteries whatsoever would be a God in man's image and therefore an imaginary God, not the God of the Bible at all. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's words in Isaiah. He goes on to say, We like to tie up everything into neat intellectual parcels with all appearance of mystery dispelled and no loose ends hanging out. I want that. I want to finish teaching tonight and y'all leave and be like, okay, fantastic. That was a perfectly intellectual parcel. We'll take it with us and there's no questions. That's what I want. And that's not what we should strive for. He says we do this for a sake of a tidier theology because when you really get to the nitty-gritty of it, our theology is not very tidy. It's very hard sometimes. It's very mysterious. Not, not unable to be understood, but mysterious because that's who our God is. He's beyond our understanding. That means there will be mystery. He said, to assert man's responsibility in a way that excludes God from being sovereign or to affirm God's sovereignty in a way that destroys the responsibility of man, both mistakes need to be guarded against. So my question is, what would the extremes lead to? If we said, if we didn't want these two things to live side by side in the scriptures and we said, um, I'll just go with God as sovereign and I'll, dis, I'll just, uh, this whole thing about man being responsible, I'll just I'll throw it over here and not worry about it. What would that lead to? What would a church look like that does that? Complacent? What else? Arrogant? What else? Openly sinful? What else? Unevangelistic. God's sovereign will choose who he wants. What is the point? No. I think if Crosspoint is going to have a tendency to lean in a particular direction in the way of mistake, that's probably the direction we would be more tempted to lead. God's sovereign, we're good. What's the point? Why be evangelistic? Why share the gospel? Why speak out? I'm not saying we're guilty of that. But if it's one or the other, I don't see us generally tossing God's sovereignty by the wayside and saying, let's just focus on man's responsibility. They go side by side. What happens if you do throw God's sovereignty by the wayside and only focus on man's responsibility? Works. Your gospel will not be a complete, full, robust gospel. It will be a remixed version that sounds a lot like do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, do this. You're responsible for this, do this, don't do this. If you take God's sovereignty and put it to the wayside. But this, this concept of antinomy helps us to let them sit side by side as they do in the Scriptures. So there's your intellectual parcel tied up with no loose ends. Look at verse 27, or turn back to Exodus 4, sorry. We're not even going to come close to getting through all these verses tonight. He's lost. All is lost. Exodus 4, 24 through 26. <clears throat> At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, this doesn't get any less confusing. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. Anyone want to explain that? <laughs> My goodness. You go from one set of verses to the next that is greatly troubling. All right, I'll try to keep this short. Ultimately, what we're seeing here is a lack of diligence and obedience. Um, what happens here is Moses has two sons. He had circumcised one of them. Why did he circumcise him? Who put that in place? God for his people. Okay, so what we have here is that Moses had circumcised one and not the other, and so there was disobedience here. This is a very intrusive interruption of Scripture uh, with Scripture, by Scripture, for Scripture, where uh, while we don't know all the details, we know for certain that God's wrath had been stirred and God's aim was to put Moses to death. That's quite the turn of events for a little bit of disobedience, isn't it? You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him to let my people go. You're going to take the staff. You're going to throw it down. I might kill you right now. That's abrupt. That's like, you're reading that. You should be like, whoa, what happened? And what we're seeing here is that he was not diligent in his obedience. He was disobedient to a degree. He had circumcised one of his sons, but he hadn't circumcised the other. Clearly, there was one that wasn't here from what happens. The reason was that Moses had been disobedient, circumcising one of his sons. This was likely done for the sake of keeping peace in the family. If you read some of the background and read some of the details, it's likely, we have to read between the lines here, and I don't want to impose my own thoughts on Scripture, but it appears that this was likely done to keep the peace. Whether it was Jethro, who didn't want the other boy circumcised, whether it was Zipporah, who didn't want the other boy circumcised, this had been done likely for the sake of keeping the peace in the family. It was not a matter of forgetfulness. Rather, for Moses, it was purposeful disobedience. You cannot try to keep the peace at home by disobeying God's commands. It will never work. Okay? You can't say, well, I'm not going to do what God says here because uh, my child might be offended or my spouse might be offended. God will be offended when you disobey him. One commentator stated that nothing is more intolerable than to defraud God of his due obedience in order to please men. On this account, Paul bears witness that a pestilence raged among the Corinthians when the Lord's Supper was profaned. Remember, they were getting drunk on the Lord's Supper because it was an act of impiety that so precious a treasure should be so lightly esteemed. So my question is, how do we do this? Where do we do this? Where are some areas where we take something sacred and we treat it as secondary or optional when we shouldn't? This doesn't have to be for personal confession time. I'm, I'm looking for feedback. Something sacred and treat it as secondary or optional. The church, involvement in the church. You live in a community where most of the, Christ, most of the professing Christians do not have much use, understanding, care for the local body. That's a problem. What are some other areas where we can do that? Marriage. Marriage represents the relationship between, between Christ and His bride, the church. And when we treat it as though it's optional or maybe I don't want to do this anymore, that, that's not a way of thinking that God puts before us. Tithing, yeah. Giving, sacrificially. 
man, that, that's one of the easiest ones to slip into, where it's like, ah, uh, you know, he'll understand. Things are tight. He doesn't present it as optional. Yeah? Yeah? God-ordained leadership. That's another thing in this community that you live in. Um, there are many who have just taken a form of leadership or a paradigm of leadership that is just, just this is what we th- how we think it would be best and how we think it should work, as opposed to what does this say about leadership and structure and things like that. Prayer is another area. Communion. So then she calls him a bridegroom of blood. While throwing the blood at his feet or touching his feet, with the recently severed foreskin of her son. Things you thought you would never say in front of a room of people. <laughs> and in a sense, just to make it really as, as, as brief as we can, um, she's saying, I'm not happy with you, Moses, because of your actions. You have forced me to inflict pain and draw blood from my son to save you from your disobedience. You're dying. I have to take the flint knife and do this thing because of your disobedience. That's what's happening here. Um, it's confusing to read, but if you look at it, we can, we can draw those things from it. So to say the least, what we're seeing here is repentance, but it's pretty hasty. It's sort of this, fine, we repent, blood of whatever. It's, it's sort of this like, it's not this, let us come together in a wholehearted manner and worship as a family and do the obedient things that the Lord has called us to. It's very hasty um, and not so, um, so sober-minded, it doesn't appear. It's not a solemn act of worship. But one author put it this way. He said, God sometimes graciously pardons the unworthy as far as the infliction of punishment goes, that by this kindness he may invite us to true and sincere repentance. God's much more merciful than many of us realize. He, he, he gives grace in larger capacities than we can normally wrap our head around. And he's probably done it with each of us in some manner where we're like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Well, that wasn't like the most solemn act of worship. But God may allow that to happen in such a manner so as to bring you to true repentance and and true worship and true wholehearted movement for His glory in all capacities and in every situation. Look at verse 27. It's less weird. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord uh, had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is great news. This section right here is wonderful. Aaron, Moses, together, tag teaming this thing, dynamic duo, working together in a plural manner for the glory of God, brought together by God to do this, these things for His glory, lead God's people in the direction that God would have them go, and they share with, God, they share with each other. It's really sweet. They recount God's deeds. They kind of t- say, look, this is what God told me. This is what God told you. This is sweet. Then they communicate those truths to the people of Israel, and the people believed. So with this great encouragement that God has uh, seen them and heard them, they rightly respond by bowing their heads in worship. When people are reminded that God sees their affliction and provides relief, they can worship God in the midst of their affliction. Right now, they're being afflicted. They're still enslaved. 
the dynamics have not changed at all, and they're worshiping God in the midst of it because they were told, God knows what you need. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Very bold. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Okay, that went south quickly. But wasn't this the response that they expected? Like, should he have expected anything else? Didn't God say, He's not going to let you go. I will harden his heart. We'll look at verses uh, 3 through 9. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Essentially, just totally dismissed. They bring together, the Lord says, let us go. And he's like, don't you have something to do? You're, you're distracting everyone from the work we've set them to. Quickly dismissed. Get back to your burdens. Verse 5, And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? Exclamation point. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they, shall, that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cried, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid upon the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Okay, that went well. So God intervenes and their conditions worsen. God intervenes, and their conditions worsen first. Some of you may have experienced something similar, where your aim was to worship God and respond rightly, then you're accused of being idle. Or you want to worship God and respond rightly, and you're accused of being lazy, or not a hard enough worker, or a liar. All that we do is work hard, and you accuse us of being idle? This is interesting. Just... Maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't. But the result was that more work was required with less resources. Have any of you ever experienced that, where more work was required with less resources, almost as a sign of punishment, and then God was dismissed by the leadership at hand? And the result was that by God's very design, His people were treated worse for a season. By God's design, His people were treated worse for a season. Would you be okay with that? I have a hard time with it. I look at that and I'm thinking, by God's design, his people were treated worse. At least for a season. When things go bad, do you, does, it, does the thought even creep into your mind where you're like, you know, this may be God's design and it may just be necessary that I'm treated worse for a season. I don't generally go there. My view of myself, my view of my circumstances, I was talking to someone about it recently, that Paul Tripp gave a great explanation. He said, if you have yourself, circumstances, what's going on in your life is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. You need someone to take the mirror of God's word to hold it up to you so you can see reality. It may be that you're treated worse for a season by God's design. Also note here that God is always good. We have a tendency to think that when our conditions are lighter, God is good. And when our conditions worsen, maybe he's not as good as he was before. That's not how God is. God's always good all of the time. There's never a time where he's not 
perfectly wonderful and merciful and loving and perfectly in justice with his sovereign will that is above our understanding. There's never a time where he slips, messes up, was snoozing. He's not like the Baals. Um, there's not a, I mean, he is altogether different, and there's never a time where he is not perfect. So as our conditions change, we can know that God's perfect in this condition, and maybe, maybe for a season it's harder. Maybe for a long time it's harder. Some of y'all sitting here have been through way greater pain than I have ever even remotely experienced. So I don't want to sit up here arrogantly and be like, suck it up and get through the hard times. Because some of y'all have experienced hard times that I can't even wrap my head around. But you have to know that God is perfect. He loves you with a love that is complete and lacking in absolutely nothing. There's no time where the love that he loves you with fails or falters. And he's, he's more about his glory than your comfort. And so for the people of Israel, God will get his glory. He will be worshiped by his people. But for a season, it will worsen for them. And next week, we'll see if their response is, okay, that's cool, God. We're understanding. Because that's not how they respond. Um, let's pray, and then we'll dismiss. Lord, I'm thankful that you were, or that you are as active now in the lives of your children as you were when you heard the cries of Israel under the oppression in Egypt. I'm thankful that over the years and decades and centuries that, that you, have, you have not grown further from your children, but you are as close as you have always been. I'm thankful that your purposes and your plans and your will have not wavered and weakened but that they are as strong and certain as they have ever been. Lord, I just confess, thinking about the mystery of your will and how you would harden one heart and soften another and have a purpose of one as a vessel of wrath for destruction and one as a vessel of mercy, it's very hard. And it's hard to teach it. And we do not leave here tonight with little intellectual parcels wrapped up with no loose ends. We will likely leave here tonight with a lot more questions, maybe even than the answers we have. But I pray that we would trust you. I pray that we would not see things that are hard for us to understand and just dismiss them on account of the fact that we can't understand it at first glance. I'm thankful for sanctification. I'm thankful that you're not a God that just cares about us converting and then... That's it. But that you are actively involved in making us to be more Christ-like. And I know that will not happen apart from the Word. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you for your sovereign and mighty hand, always moving and working according to your will and not ours. Lord, I am thankful that there is never a time where I have a better idea that you need to hear. I'm thankful that there's never a time where I have a way of going about things or, an, or a, an, a thought about something that trumped what you were thinking. But that when we come to you in prayer, we have much more that we need to hear from you. And we have much more where we need to be changed. Lord, you are full of love. You're full of mercy. You're full of grace. You're perfectly just. Your wrath is never out of line. It's rightly towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. I pray that you would keep us from unrighteousness, but allow us to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh for your glory.
Lord, we love you very much. I pray that we'd be able to go and walk in these truths along with the many other beautiful truths we've heard in the preached word. Uh, We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.